The Sourlands region is one of the most beautiful places in central New Jersey. You won't find too much in the way of suburban sprawl or housing developments there, mostly just unspoiled nature, hiking trails, and some of the best views in the state. If you live in the area, there's no better place to go for an enjoyable walk in the woods. But a hundred years ago, it was a very different place. And if you had gone for a walk in the Sourlands, there was a good chance you would never come back. It's forgotten history. great guest for you today. I'm very excited about this. My guest is uh, Jim Davidson, and he is a historian. He is very well known in the area. He is also the author of several books about local history, including New Jersey's Lindbergh Kidnapping and Trial, and When the Circus Came to Town, which is about the media circus that resulted in Flemington and all the crazy things that happened during the Lindbergh trial. Um, so, uh, Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And today, Jim is going to take us through uh, something that he does regularly at lo local libraries and other venues through the area. He has a talk called The Dark Side of the Sourlands. And it is about why the Sourland Mountains, which is uh, just a wonderful scenic place, was New Jersey's Bermuda Triangle, where people would just disappear for a, a, a certain period of history. So thank you, Jim. Let's uh, get started. So first of all, for those who may not be familiar, could you briefly describe where the Sourland Mountains are and what, they, what, the, what the landscape is like? Well, they're through central Jersey. They go from um, Lambertville all the way over to uh, Skillman and 206. Um, it's the highest points in central Jersey. They have tremendous mountains. Uh, it's all wooded today. It's been clear-cut several times in its history, but uh, a lot of preservation goes on now, especially because of the Saraland Conservancy, which is located in Hopewell. Uh, it, it covers seven different townships in three counties. Um, I always lived in Hunterdon County, and about 15 years ago, I ended up buying an old house coincidentally right across in the Lindbergh estate. And I had never lived in the Sarlins before, and I have to tell you, it's a very different place. The first night I was there, uh, I heard this noise that brought me right up out of bed. It was a fisher cat, which I didn't even know what a fisher cat was. It's the only uh, place in New Jersey a fisher cat is found, and they're a nocturnal weasel that are ugly as anything and they howl like a howling monkey. And they're very elusive. Um, they had one actually run over in Hopewell a couple years ago, and everybody came and, and looked at it. But uh, being a historian, I started doing research on my house, which got me into the area. And I found that the Saraland Mountains, especially in the mid to late 1800s, was a very, very wild place. 
it's been known as the hills of missing men. Also, as you mentioned, uh, Dick, in New Jersey's Bermuda Triangle. Some of the terms that I kept finding in various newspaper articles were degeneracy, lawlessness, endemic thievery, midnight revelries, intemperance. This is my favorite term, mental dilapidation, which I had never heard before. (laughs) Mixed unions, people were defected, lots of inbreeding. Actually, the New York Times had an article in uh, 1879 which um, the title of which was Miscegenation in New Jersey, a colony of ignorant black and white people and their mode of life. In that, they talk about the people living in the Saralands, they term them mongrels, and they said there were orgies all over the mountain. Uh, The following year in 1880, they wrote another article about the Saralands entitled Barbarism in New Jersey. The black and white inhabitants of the Saralyn Mountains, a remarkable colony of barbarians in the midst of civilization. And even in as late as 1917, a Pennington newspaper uh, wrote an article in which it said, no mountain in the United States bore so evil a reputation. Hmm. So we already have uh, the, the journalists of the time looking down on New Jersey even back then. So in researching, I... I've decided that the people there either were living in the Saralands because they were too poor to leave or because they were running away from something. Mm-hmm. And I should mention that there were a large number of blacks living in the Saralands because at that time they had these gigantic peach orchards which went from basically Skillman all the way down into Ringo's owned by the Wyckoff family. There were over 20 different Wyckoff families living up in that area and they had these massive peach orchards, and they brought a lot of blacks in from South Jersey where they made peach baskets. There were also other industries up there. There were potteries over on uh, Long Hill Road side of the mountain, and uh, they had some quarries up there, but they actually founded a whole, I won't say a town, but it was called Minitown. It's, uh, right where Hillbilly Hall is. They had over 25 houses and a general store there back in in the 1800s. You can find out about uh, the Saralins in Jim Luce's book, uh, New Jersey Saralin Mountains, which uh, was published in 2001. Uh, Also, there are other um, places to gain information. Cornelius Larison, who was a very famous doctor and educator out of uh, Ringo's back in the 1880s, 1870s, uh, went up into the Saralins and interviewed a a former slave by the name of Sylvia Dubois, who uh, supposedly died when she was either 116 years old or uh, 121, Mm -hmm. depending on the newspaper. Also, there's a lot of... um, information about um, in the local papers from the Richard Wyckoff murders, which occurred in 1916, and also uh, a black man who the Hunter County Democrat interviewed in 1931 uh, when he warns Charles Lindbergh about buying, uh, building a house in the Saralyn Mountains because it was a very bad place to uh, live. So, um, one of the first people I want to mention 
um, is Sylvia Dubois or Dubois, depending on what part of the country you're from. Like mm -hmm. you're from England, your family is from England, you probably <laughs> yeah. say Dubois. I say Dubois. I, I but, would also say Dubois because I took high school French. Oh, okay, there you go. <laughs> so Sylvia uh, was born a slave in Zion, up, which is a, was a small town up in the Saralands, and worked at the Hunt House, which uh, is up at the top of Amwell and Province Line Road, a uh, very famous stone house up there, which is where George Washington uh, assembled all of his generals uh, before the attack on uh, Monmouth, uh, the Battle of Monmouth. It was the largest uh, group of generals ever to meet together during the Revolution, and Sylvia was a slave there. And I always found it interesting in her interview with um, Dr. Larison, she had such a good memory, she could remember exactly what each of the generals were wearing, etc. Well, she was born uh, in Zion, and she was sold into slavery. Well, she was a slave. She, w she was sold, and her master, whose name was Du Bois, uh, took her to Great Bend, Pennsylvania, which is up at the top of the Susquehanna River on the New York border. And he built a tavern on the west side of the river, and Sylvia um, had an interesting job. He had a ferry across the Susquehanna, and the only way you could get back and forth on the ferry was by having a boat uh, tethered to a rope. And Sylvia's job was to pull the rope across the back and forth across the river. And apparently, she, um, according to this article by Larison, she got very strong, very wiry. She smoked a pipe, drank brandy. And she became such a fighter that Dubois would end up uh, pitting her against men, and she would be fighting men in this tavern. But she couldn't stand her, her mistress, master, and this woman was always picking on her. And finally, one day, she was washing the, the floor of the tavern. She was on her hands and knees, according to Larison, and... This woman came by and kicked the bucket on her, and she jumped up and grabbed a, a fireplace and iron and hit the woman over the head, just about killed her. And finally, uh, Mr. Dubois, who very much liked Sylvia, said, you know what, this is not going to work. And he gave her her freedom, and she walked across um, from Upper Pennsylvania in the middle of winter with one of her four children, and went back into the Saraland Mountains. And when she got, this is in the um, early 1800s, and when she got there, she ended up inheriting from her grandfather what was known as Putt's Tavern. And Putt's Tavern was a really wild place. It was in the middle of nowhere. It never got a tavern license, but it was infamous from New York to Philadelphia. <laughs> And when you got uh, to the tavern, uh, and she, uh, by the way, got it from her grandfather, Harry Compton, who uh, was black and in the American Revolution. And after the American Revolution, he got his um, freedom. He had been a, 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 a fifer uh, working for a general putt, and he named the tavern after his uh, former owner. 
And she inherited the tavern, and they had chicken fights, they had um, prostitutes, they had everything. As a matter of fact, uh, Dr. Larison in the book said many a woman had uh, been deflowered there and that he had to uh, take care of medical problems from a lot of people who had contracted all kinds of diseases <laughs> from being in Putt's Tavern. And... Uh, she talked about having to make a pilgrimage twice a year into the valleys where she would beg for food, beg for money, etc. Her daughter, who lived with her, was named Elizabeth. They called her Big Lib. And she read cards as a, uh, for a living. And she would, um, on Friday nights when people got paid, she'd bring these old greasy cards out and uh, tell fortunes with them. So she was kind of a terror of the mountain. And I have to say, um, Sylvia was uh, really, even in her advanced age, was really wiry. Uh, one of the interviews was conducted in the middle of winter, and there was a lot of snow on the ground, and Larison comes up in his buggy, and he says, do you have enough food? And he says, if not, I'll, I'll drive you down to a store with my horse and buggy. And she says... Uh, oh, no, I walked to Skillman yesterday, and he said there was like two feet of snow out, and that was like eight miles away. She had walked to the store and come back. Um, but in the... He sounds like an unbelievably tough person. Uh, yes, <laughs> and it was interesting. When she died, she had gotten sick and was moved to Ringo's, and she picked up the 100 County Democrat one day, and her obituary was in there. And she was still alive, so she traipsed to Flemington and chewed out the uh, editor saying, well, I'm not dead yet, so just hold this obituary. <laughs> but um, in Larison's book, uh, I'm going to read you a quote because it's pretty interesting. She comments on the people living in the Sarilands. And this is a quote from uh, the 1883 book, um, which is entitled Sylvia Dubois, a slave who beat her mistress and gained her freedom. And that's available online. You can still buy that. So the quote is, the Negroes marry the whites when they want to, but they don't do much marrying up here. They don't have to, and it's no use. It's too much trouble. And children, there's plenty of them, and in all colors, black and white and yellow, and any other color you've ever seen but blue. There ain't no blue ones up here yet. These people up here just live together, too many of them. Why, in some of those shanties there are more than a dozen blacks and whites in all colors with nothing to eat, nothing to wear, and no wood to burn. And what can they do? They have to steal. Why, you wouldn't believe how much they steal. But they don't steal much from one another because if they did, they'd be killed real soon. But they go off the mountain into the valleys and they steal everything they can find, sheep and chickens and grain and meat and clothes and anything else they can eat or wear. Murders are common. There are more folks killed up here than anybody knows of. Folks just disappear. Hmm. And in my research, uh, I've come across some crazy uh, murders. Um, one of, well, I, I should mention that uh, a guy by the name of Charlie Sutphin, who I actually knew when I grew up in Flemington, he used to ride around the town. He was the rag man, and he'd drive around the town in a wagon with a white horse, 
and he lived on South Main Street, and sometimes he'd fall asleep on the wagon and the horse would just go home. But he wrote uh, two different, or he was interviewed, and there were two different articles in 1930 in the County Democrat where he um, talks about it's a really bad thing for Charles Lindbergh to move up on the mountain because so many people get killed up there. Hmm. And he starts talking about these different people. And one of them, he says, is Sam Cruz. He was colored and he was shot to death. And then there was Ted Cruz, which this was a really well-known case, and there's a lot of articles about this in the Hunterdon County Democrat, where Cruz was at a party, and he was there, and there were apparently a lot of people getting drunk, and a guy, by the, uh, a fight breaks out at this party, and this woman by the name of Thompson uh, gets hit um, by by Ted Cruz, sort of in the middle of this uh, melee, and she falls to the floor, and Ted Cruz runs out. He he's gone home. He's getting out of there, and this Mrs. Thompson's son, George Thompson, says, "Oh man, this guy has killed my wife." My, my mother, and he takes off with a friend of his, Israel Morocco, and they run after Ted Cruz, they catch him, they get him on the ground, they start stomping on him, and George Thompson pulls out a knife and slits his throat. Well, they go back and they say, well, we just killed uh, Ted Cruz. Meantime, his mother has gotten up off the floor and she's fine. Well, Ted Cruz crawls home. He's still alive. And he gets home, and lo and behold, uh, his, his wife is there, and he lives all night long uh, being caressed by his, his wife, barely able to talk because his throat slit. But he says, George Thompson is the one that uh, stabbed me and slit my throat, but Israel, Morocco, and bo both of them were the ones that actually had... Uh, stomped on him. So this goes to trial, and they have all these people, including uh, a guy by the name of Amos Congo, who testifies, saying, yeah, this guy, they went off after him, and they um, uh, beat him up, and they slit his throat. And the jury came back and said, not guilty, hmm. which I always found interesting, because I don't think uh, the white juries in Flemington, especially in this case, really cared about uh, what was going on up in the Saraland Mountains. Do you think that's why there was it had a reputation for lawlessness? Like, why do you think that... Yeah, I don't think anybody went to the Saraland Mountains in, unless they had to. <laughs> but uh, Charlie Sutphin talks about other ones. Uh, Clossy the fiddle player. He disappeared on his way home from playing at a dance. Later they found his bones in an abandoned ca uh, cabin. Then... Um, Tom Corbett, he was uh, shot in the leg and bled to death. Uh, another black guy, uh, Jim Anderson, he had his head blown off at close range. Uh, one of the craziest ones was this Aaron True, who was colored. He went missing over in Copper Hill, where Route 31 is now, and all the car dealers are. They had a uh, grinding mill for grinding up uh, bones of animals where they could use them as fertilizer. 
and somebody brought in a wagon load of bones, and uh, Aaron True's bones were in the bottom of the wagon. Wow. But they had um, another one um, that occurred in 1873. Was It was a really famous case, uh, but the, guy, the victim's name was Isaac Smith, and he was caught stealing lumber when they were uh, building the Mount Zion Methodist Church, which is just inside Hillsborough Township, and, where Zion and um, uh, Spring Hill Road come together. And he was stealing this lumber. He got caught. He went to trial in Somerville, and he was fined. Uh, well, he had to pay $5 for the lumber. And on the way home, he was walking through a cornfield, and somebody stuck a gun in his head and killed him at close range. But what was really weird, in 1873, this was a muzzle loader and they found the, the paper wad lot still lodged in his head. None of these murders were ever uh, actually solved. Another really well-known murder, this, this murder was not only in all the New York and Philadelphia papers, it even made Cincinnati newspapers. Hmm. This was the uh, death of Peter Nixon. And this was, an, an, again, colored uh, man, 1880. Peter Nixon was living alone in a house up just off of Lindbergh Road, and his neighbors were Ben uh, Peterson and his wife and his daughter Lucinda. And Ben Peterson uh, moved to New Hope. And after a couple months, Peter Nixon sent a letter to him and saying, you know, I really like, I, I need a housekeeper here. Would your daughter be interested in keeping house for me? And they all agreed this was fine. So Lucinda uh, moves back up onto Lindbergh Road, where um, Ben Peterson's wife decides to come and visit. And pretty soon he's, she starts visiting more and more. And finally, she decides she's not coming home. It was uh, nicer to live with Peter Nixon than to live in New Hope with her husband, <laughs> uh, Ben Peterson. So over the winter of 1879 into 1880, uh, Ben Peterson is mulling all this over. And finally, in May of 1880, he's had it. He gets drunk, and at 2 in the morning, he loads his gun up with nails, and he walks from New Hope all the way up into the Saraland Mountains on Lindbergh Road, uh, which was a four-hour walk, and in his pocket he had a note saying, I am going to kill um, Peter Nixon, I'm going to kill my wife, and then I'm going to slit my throat and kill myself. So he's already kind of confessed with this note in, in his pocket. So he knocks on um, Peter Nixon's door at two in the morning. Peter Nixon comes down groggy, and Ben Peterson just puts the gun right to his head and blows his head off. Meantime, his wife hides under the bed and his daughter flees out the window. So uh, he reloads his gun. He looks for his wife. His wife starts to run out of the cabin. He shoots her, and then he takes this knife and he slits his throat. Well, both his wife and Ben Peterson both live. Wow. The daughter comes back. They um, actually take the daughter into custody. This, this trial was uh, heard in Flemington. And uh, they keep her into custody because they want her as a witness. So I found it amazing that this was obviously premeditated murder. He had a note and yeah. wrote down everything he was uh, going to do. And 
they found him guilty of a crime of passion, and he only got 10 years in prison. Wow. So, anyway, that was another case. He had a long time to think about it. That's yeah, for he sure, does. That walk. Yeah, and then <laughs> uh, there was an article I picked up in the Hillsborough newspapers in 1877. It says, Outrage at Saralyn Mountain. Hard drinking, hard living, hard loving. So apparently there was this uh, woman by the name of Ida Shepherd who was really uh, very familiar with all of her male neighbors, especially the married ones. And finally, one angry wife, a, a woman by the name of Mrs. John Ward, on New Year's Eve got seven young guys drunk and paid them each $2 to go and break into Shepherd's house at midnight. And they break into the house, and the husband took off through the back door. But they caught Ida, they tore her clothes off, and they tarred and feathered her, and they left her for dead. But she wasn't dead. Her husband came back, and I guess they have to use kerosene to get tar and feather off. I don't know. I haven't found that yet. But anyway, they uh, arrested all seven people, and they got nine to 18 months in jail. But they were even... even horror and feathering people up there. So, almost medieval. But so. um, these, these murders just keep uh, going on. Probably the most famous murder occurred uh, in Wurtsville, uh, which is in East Amwell Township, in, 19, in the winter of 1916. It was the Richard, Richard Wyckoff murders. And Richard Wyckoff, and his, who was in his 80s, had a 75-year-old housekeeper by the name of Carrie Fisher. And their son, uh, actually not son, uh, nephew, William Wyckoff, was uh, in Flemington. He was shopping, and he bought a shirt for his uncle, and he came back, and the door was open, and there was blood around the outside of the door, and he goes in, and Richard Wyckoff was laying there with an axe in his head. And, and just the, the Wyckoffs are the family that owns yeah, the Yeah, it's a very, very extended family. They're still all over <laughs> okay. the area. So Richard Wyckoff is laying there with an a axe in his head, and they start looking around for Carrie Fisher, Catherine Fisher, and they find her in the barn under a pile of hay, and she's been bludgeoned to death with an iron pipe. So they fire, follow some tracks up into the Sarolins, and then they find a money tin up there and some uh, clothes that have been left behind. So they try to uh, figure out who did this, and the sheriff is, is at wit's end. He can't find anything out. Well, a couple weeks later, they read the will, and the nephew, uh, William Wyckoff, gets all this guy's money. Apparently, um, he was the only beneficiary, and the estate was pretty substantial. So the sheriff arrests William Wyckoff as the murderer. Well, they just the jury dismissed this in, in a very short time, but the sheriff would not give up. He hired the Burns Detective Agency, which I thought was really interesting to go up into the mountain incognito. And two guys went up there to live in the mountain for six months and fit in with the, the population. 
What they discovered, this is in 1916 now, that there were seven other murders and disappearances up there that nobody had reported. Wow. But eventually they caught two guys. One um, was a guy by the name of Charles Hawkins who had already fled to Cleveland. And the other was this William McLaughlin who uh, was sentenced uh, to prison, hard labor in prison in Trenton. Hawkins died there, but it was, I always thought, very coincidental that McLaughlin got out uh, a week before the Lindbergh kidnapping. Hmm. So, and that place where William Wyckoff uh, lived was just put into preservation by the East Amwell Township, but uh, that was like a bad luck property. The worst fire in East Amwell history occurred there, where five people were burned to death in the 1970s, uh, 1960s. And then uh, their barn burned down in the 1970s. So, yeah, that's some of the murders that occurred on the Saralyn Mountain. Listeners, just a follow-up to our previous show about Needham Roberts, the black soldier who became a hero in World War I, only to have his life fall apart when he came home. It turns out that just before we recorded this podcast with reenactor Algernon Ward Jr., a new book about Roberts came out, and that had some new information in it that we did not know at the time. This book was written by Wayne Hedgepeth, who is a Los Angeles-based author and private investigator. The book is called African American Heroes, 1776-1919, to the story of Sergeant Needham Roberts. Now, everything that Ward said in the last episode was based on the best available information at the time. He did his homework. He knows his stuff. But Hedgepath, who happens to be the grandnephew of Roberts, did some deep digging and found out some information that changes some of the details of the story. First of all, Ward mentions that Roberts traveled from his hometown of Trenton to New York to enlist in the army with some money that his father had given him to pay a poll tax. This information came from a pamphlet called Brief Adventures of the First American Soldiers Decorated in World War as Told by Needham Roberts. This pamphlet is attributed to Needham Roberts, but as Hedgepath notes, New Jersey was never one of the states that ever required citizens to pay a poll tax to vote. So this is a weird inconsistency, and it's one of the reasons that Hedgepath doubts the authenticity of that pamphlet. So personally, I don't know if it was written by someone else, or if it's real and Roberts was embellishing his story, or if there was a ghostwriter involved. There are any number of ways that mistake could have happened, and I have no idea, and we may never know the full truth with 100% certainty. Uh, The second correction is that Ward speculated that Roberts may have joined the Harlem Rattlers because of its famous band, which was led by the ragtime musician James Reese Europe. And while it is true that the band helped recruiting efforts, Hedgepeth found documents showing that Johnson actually joined the Rattlers in 1916 before James Reese Europe joined the unit. So it was impossible for that to have been a factor in why he joined. It also means that he joined considerably before the U.S. joined World War I, not as the war broke out, as he had originally said. 
So there's an article on our website at princetoninfo.com that goes into more detail on this, and there's also an article about Needham Roberts. And the best way to find both of those is to go to princetoninfo.com and search for Needham Roberts. That's spelled N-E-E-D-H-A-M. And if you have any questions or comments, you can visit our Facebook page or email me at ForgottenHistoryNJ at gmail.com. Thanks, and back to the show. demographics of the Summerland Mountains today, they're a bit different from what was described at the beginning, like they were in the 1800s. Right. What, what point did that shift? Well, Lindbergh building a house up there changed everything, because up until that time, they were just very small dirt roads. Nobody had cars. Everybody walked. I talked to a lot of uh, people who used to live there back in the 30s, and they had trails going down to Hope. Well, everybody pretty well walked. If you saw a car, it was unusual. But um, once Lindbergh moved up there, people started coming up looking for the house. And there were a lot of stills up there at the time, and the local people hated Lindbergh. Mm -hmm. uh, and just to carry this forward, they didn't start paving roads up there until um, the 30s and most of the roads got paved uh, in the 60s. Hmm. So it was, uh, I have pictures of the house that I lived in uh, across from the Lindbergh state from the 50s and 60s. They were still all dirt roads up there. But um, as I started to mention, they had all kinds of stills. This was prohibition. Uh, there were actually two legal distilleries in the area, one in Rileyville and another in Linvale, where they made Applejack or Jersey Lightning, sometimes it was called Red Eye. But um, it was so inaccessible that it was a great place. I can remember my father telling me, he went to the University of Pennsylvania, and he said for fraternity parties, they would come over in this area and buy booze for the fraternity parties. Uh, but they had stills in Mount Rose and Zion and Montgomery, Woodsville, Devil's Half Acre, all over the place. Even the uh, son of the Mercer County Sheriff was arrested for um, uh, having illegal stills. Uh, in the 1920s, they actually had two revenue agents that um, went to Hopewell asking directions up into the mountain. And the people said, you really don't want to go up there. Well, those two revenue agents just disappeared. Matter of fact, over off a of Long Hill Road in the 1940s, they had a plane come down in the woods, mm -hmm. and some of the locals started checking, and they had a large amount of money on this plane. And the rumor is they buried the pilot and the plane and kept the money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the plane just disappeared. Wow. There were uh, two really well-known families up there, uh, they lived over in Zion, and when I do this talk sometimes, I have to be careful because every once in a while I get their relatives in the audience. But uh, one was named the Kuglers, and the other ones were named the Bushes. And they were known as the Mountain Mafia. Hmm. And they were, bootleg they were bootleggers, they were fences, they were notorious families. Actually, when the Lindbergh kidnapping occurred, uh, 
they were interviewed several times, as were all the neighbors, and the Lindbergh kidnap, uh, the, the report that is in the files of the State Police Museum talks about the Kuglers. This is a notorious family. The boys and the father seldom work. The boys all have cars and appear to have money to buy gas and are usually quite well-dressed. I understand that one or more of the boys have been in jail, and they have been questioned many times by troopers. It is common gossip when anything happens on the mountain, the bushes or the Kuglers did it. They live on the Zion Nashanik Road above the Zion Post Office. A New York lawyer has a place near them of which they are the caretakers. The neighbor says he had to hire them so they won't either steal everything out of his house or just burn it down. And one of them, Harry Kugler, was picked up in the uh, 20s for robbing the Skillman store. And he was taken to Somerville and apparently beaten up by the state police, which in a lot of my research, this was pretty common. Well, he gets out of jail and the trooper who beat him up was um, writing a ticket on 206 one day when all of a sudden this car comes flying by and ran the trooper over. He was the first person to die in the line of duty in the New Jersey State Police. And everybody in the area said that uh, uh, Harry Kugler had, had run the guy over from mm. beating him up. You know, in case anybody's not familiar with it, maybe you could tell them about the most famous crime of all happened in this area, the Lindbergh kidnapping and how it was connected well, to the people in the area. I don't, I'm not going to get into the kidnapping because I could talk for hours on that, but I will mention about some of the crazy people that lived in the Saraland Mountains that were tied to the Lindbergh kidnapping. Now, most of the people up on the mountain did not like Charles Lindbergh. Number one, he uh, purchased 425 acres, which is still, uh, the estate is still intact. It was the best hunting area up there. This was the Depression and people hunted to uh, feed their families. He posted it all. Nobody was allowed on his property. When he came into Hopewell on numerous occasions, he was very uh, brusque with the people. They said Ann was really nice, but he was not very nice. And um, now, because he's up there, all kinds of cars are coming day and night looking for his estate. Well, when the kidnapping occurred on uh, March 1st, 1932, the um, state police immediately thought that uh, probably somebody in the area who didn't like Lindbergh uh, kidnapped the baby. And they actually interviewed everybody in the area. Uh, initially, they uh, interviewed everybody within a couple mile radius and then actually a second round of interviews took place where they interviewed people up to a five-mile radius. They, they searched over 500 buildings. Uh, they pulled everybody's wells pumps up and looked into the dug wells. And again, the people up there were not real happy with what was going on. But there were three characters up there that um, played a big role in the Lindbergh kidnapping. Now, the, the first person was a guy by the name of Ben Lapica, and Ben Lapica was a student at Princeton Day School, and he had just come home the afternoon of the kidnapping and was checking his mailbox 
when this car came, and, and for the people that know the Sarilands, know that area, he lived over where the old Mazzaro's junkyard was on Lindbergh and um, North Hill, South Hill Road. So he was checking his mailbox, and the roads were so narrow, again, they were just dirt roads, that this car came by and had to go up on the uh, opposite bank. And when they did, they slowed down, and he saw that this car had some ladders in it, and it was a green car, and it had Mercer County license plates. Mm -hmm. So that was the first good clue. What was interesting, when they picked up Bruno Haltman in, 19, in September 1934, he had a blue car with New York plates on it, and they totally discounted Ben Lapica's testimony, and Ben Lapica actually testified for the defense. So they go. the state police goes on for two years. They have no luck getting anybody arrested for the kidnapping, but in the meantime, all kinds of gold certificates, which they had written the serial numbers on and recorded the serial numbers from, and ended up uh, paying all the ransom money in these gold certificates. Uh, these gold certificates started showing up all over the New York metropolitan area. And eventually, the federal government recalls the gold, and you weren't allowed to have them anymore and everybody unloaded them. Well, Bruno Hartman goes into a gas station in September of 1934 and buys 15, 50 cents worth of gas with a $10 gold certificate. And the gas station owner did not think it was legal tender, so he wrote Bruno Hartman's license plate number on the back of the bill. And a bank uh, clerk saw this, and they calling the gas station attendant and said, where'd you get this money? He said, well, if you look on the back of the bill, I wrote the guy's license plate number on the bill. And that's how they pick up Bruno Hong. Well, now they have to extradite him to New Jersey. And they have no way of getting him here. So what they do is they take Bruno Hartman's picture. And by now, because the baby was found dead, the state of New Jersey had issued a $25,000 reward to anybody who could help convict the killer of the Lindbergh baby. So with Bruno Hartman's picture in hand, the state police went around and re-interviewed everybody up on the mountain to see if there was anybody that saw this person. So they interviewed a guy by the name of Millard Whitehead, who also lived on Lindbergh Road, right down from where I had a house recently. And Millard uh, lived in this literally a shack with his wife and five kids, his parents and his brother-in-law. He was illiterate, and they were loggers up on the He and his brother-in-law were loggers up on the mountain, and they always did everything together. So the state police knock on his door, and they said, um, have you seen this person up on the mountain at all? And the brother-in-law said, no, we never saw him. And then the state police said, well, you know, if you did, you could be entitled to some of the reward money. So all of a sudden, Millard Whitehead says, oh, yeah, I saw that guy. I didn't see him once. I actually saw him twice. And the brother-in-law says, you are so full of it. You never saw this guy at all. Well, the state police buy Millard Whitehead a new suit, and they paid him. Now, this is the Depression. They pay him $300 to go into New York City to look at a lineup where Bruno Hartman is. Now, Bruno Hartman's been in jail a couple days. He was sleep-deprived. He said that he was beaten up with a hammer in a sock. 
and he was just totally disheveled. He's in this lineup with six uh, plainclothes policemen, mm-hmm. and they show Millard Whitehead the, the picture again, and can you identify this person? And remember, you might be able to get some reward money. He says, oh, yeah, it's that guy standing over there. So now they have Millard Whitehead's, uh, actually it's Whitehead, W-H-I-T-E-D. They have uh, his uh, testimony to help bring um, Hartman back, but they're looking for one other person. So they're canvassing the area, and they get down into Hopewell on 519, on the corner of Amwell Road and 519. The house is still there. And they find this old guy in his 80s who was blind. He had cataracts. His name was Amandus Hockmuth. And he had been a Prussian that came over. They had interviewed him once already. He said, no, I didn't see anything. He lived with his daughter and um, her husband. Everybody said, no, we didn't see anything. Well, then they mentioned the ransom money. And all of a sudden, Amanda Sockman says, oh, yeah, I saw that guy. He said that March 1st was a cold, windy, really nasty day. And Amanda Sockman says, well, I was sitting on my front porch when at 9 in the morning when this car came uh, from Hopewell, ripping around the corner and slid into the ditch. And I saw this guy. I saw this guy, Bruno Hortman. Well... The guy was, I won't say senile, but he definitely was blind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the daughter said, you didn't see this guy. Oh, yeah, I did. Well, the state police didn't like how they had this guy identified at 9 in the morning. So Amanda Hockmuth kept being interviewed. And by the time of the trial in Flemington in um, January of 1935, Uh, The story was, I was feeding my chickens at 5 o'clock at night, walking from my house to the barn when this car stood in there. So with these two testimonies, these were the the only two testimonies that were gotten that allowed Bruno Hauptmann to be extradited to New Jersey. And just as a postscript to this, uh, Millard Whitehead uh, did get $3,000 as part of the reward money. And two weeks after the trial, he was arrested for stealing a 100-and-county road grader. Hmm. Amandus Hockmuth did get $3,000, and he was in Governor Hoffman's office. And they knew that this guy was blind. And 10 feet from him, just across the room, was a um, vase with some flowers in it. And Governor Hoffman says... So, uh, Amandus, uh, what's in that, uh, on that table over there? And he looks and he looks and he looks and he squints and he says, oh, it looks like a woman's hat. <laughs> and this was the person who identified Bruno Hauptmann. But I have to tell you just one more story in, in closing here. At the trial in Flemington, Attorney General Wilentz, who was the prosecutor of the trial, was really uh, scared that Amandus Hockmoose could not see Bruno Hartman sitting just a few feet away. So they rehearsed him getting off the witness chair and going over to this chair to identify Bruno Hartman. So when the um, when Hockman gets up to testify, he goes through his whole testimony, and then Wilentz says, well, can you identify the person? 
can you go and put your hand on his shoulder? So he goes down like a blind man, having rehearsed all this, and he puts his hand on Bruno Hauptmann's shoulder when all of a sudden a fuse blows and the whole courtroom goes dark. And some of the reporters at the time said it was like God had just convicted Bruno Hauptmann because <laughs> of, of this guy. So that's the Saralyn Mountains. Uh-huh. It, it was a pretty wild place. Uh, you you kind of touched on this earlier, but it's not a it's it's not a lawless place anymore. When did when did that all change? Well, I think once the roads. I, I had a neighbor telling me when they moved up there in the fifties, they could smell uh, alcohol being brewed all the time, mm-hmm. and they actually uh, arrested somebody up on the mountain in the nineteen fifties. He was making five thousand ga- uh, gallons a year of moonshine. Mm-hmm. But I think once they started paving the roads and and the rich people started moving out. You know, you go up there now, there's not many of the old houses left. Mm-hmm. Everything is new. And, um, you know, there are a few developments up there. The Sarahland Conservancy has done a lot working with local townships to try to preserve the land. Like in East Amwell Township now, you have to have a minimum of 15 acres to even buy, uh, build anything up there. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you're going to see too many more houses up there. Everybody is putting their land in preservation. and um, It's a different place even today, though, I can mm-hmm. tell you, especially with the fisher cats. Where can people go to learn more about the history of this unique place? I would say the first place to start is with um, Jim Luce's book, New Jersey Saralyn Mountains, which you can get through the Saralyn Conservancy. You might be able to get it on Amazon. It's out of print, but I think the uh, Conservancy would uh, still has copies. You can come to some of my talks. I do talks all over the place. Well, uh, Jim Davidson, thank you so much for being on the show. That was an amazing talk. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and I'm sure the listeners did too. Well, it's nice that you didn't fall asleep during it. <laughs> yeah. All right, thank you. Well, this is kind of crazy. This show was originally supposed to be promoting an appearance of Jim Davidson at a library where you could hear his talk in person, but that has gone out the window due to the fact that between recording this and putting the episode up, the world got completely turned upside down by the coronavirus. Um, Everyone, please stay safe. Don't go out in public if you can help it. History podcasts are a great way to pass the time. If you're in lockdown, um, everyone be well, stay healthy, and thanks for listening. Our theme music is The Quiet Earth by Thomas Barandon. Mm-hmm.